You're listening to Love and Revolution Radio, covering the heart of change and changes of the heart, featuring stories of ordinary, extraordinary people who are waging struggles for love and revolution. This week on Love and Revolution Radio, Rhonda Fabian, the digital editor of Cosmos Journal and the co-author of the Connecting for Change study, joins us to discuss the movement of movements, self-organizing, emergence, and the personal practices that guide us through these times of great change. People are opening their hearts to the idea of a living universe, that everything we touch and see and intuit is alive and exists in interconnection. Um, and life itself is self-organizing. You know, we don't tell plants and trees how to grow and create a forest. And biospheres develop cooperatively from mutual need. And that is what this great movement of movements is doing as well. This is Sherry Mitchell for Love and Revolution Radio. Kwe, Nidups, Nidabesks, Aguanu. Welcoming greetings to you in my native language. I'm coming to you today from the misty shores of the Penobscot River here in Bunawabskeg Territory, the Don Land in central Maine. And I'm joined today by my ever insightful and wonderful co host, Miss Rivera Sun. Hello, Rivera. Hello, Sherry. You know, out here in Taos, New Mexico, it continues to creep into spring with snow falling on the mountains and the apricot blossoms opening more and more on our uh, wild and ancient tree that's growing out here in the desert next to our Earthship. We have a really special and exciting guest here on the show this week. Rhonda Fabian is the digital editor of Cosmos Journal, and she's a founding partner and the CEO of Fabian Baber Communication, which is a digital learning company for over 25 years, I believe. She's also a mindfulness advocate in the lineage of Thich Nhat Hanh and deeply involved in the transition movement in her hometown of Media, Pennsylvania, where she lives. Now, she's written or co-authored a really incredible study that caught our attention called the Connecting for Change Study, and we're going to talk a little bit about what she discovered in there. Welcome to the show, Rhonda. Thank you very much. Lovely to be with you both. Rhonda, I want to jump right into this study and start with the first insight, because you highlight five insights about global transformation in the study and What's really interesting to me is this first aspect about the movement being self-organizing. You talk about it being a story in process. And that intrigues me because when I talk about what it is that we're doing, what's going on right now in the world, it's 
creating an awareness and an understanding that we are the writers of the stories that we live. And we have the opportunity by consciously creating the moment before us, um, the reality in front of us, this opportunity to change the storyline at any point in time. And so can you talk to us a little bit about that first insight and about this self-organizing movement being a story and process? Um, sure, that's that's wonderful. I'd be happy to. And I just want to begin um, by expressing my thanks, not only for your interest in the study, Connecting for Change, but for all the extraordinary work both of you are doing, your writing and activism, the legal work, the radio show, all these things really embody what this emerging global transformation is about. So a bow of gratitude to you both. About a year ago, Cosmos participated in what I believe was an important gathering. It was the New Story Summit, and you talk about stories and this idea that we're, you know, writing a new story for humanity. And this is in Spinhorn Community, Scotland. I was fortunate to attend as an independent filmmaker. Many indigenous leaders um, were there, youth leaders too, and people I consider to be world servers from all walks of life. And what became clear almost immediately is that there isn't just one new story uh, there are so many, yes. So if you're a peace builder, you may be seeing what's happening through that lens or social justice, community, inner transformation. So in many different domains, people are experiencing emergence. And in my opinion, which may not be a very scientific one at this moment, what's happening is that people are opening their hearts to the idea of a living universe, that everything we touch and see and intuit is alive and exists in interconnection. Um, and life itself is self-organizing. You know, we don't tell plants and trees how to grow and create a forest. And biospheres develop cooperatively from mutual need. And that is what this great movement of movements is doing as well. So it's not something that belongs to one group or, or to a belief system. It's a story that's in process and um, is coming together along rules that resemble more improvisation than um, sort of a planned step-by-step approach. So you mentioned in this emerging story, there's, of course, the continuation of the old emerging story uh, and the arising of the new multi-stranded, multi-perspectived new story. But you, you mentioned a particular body of storytellers within that, the those of the movement of movements. Can you explain what you mean by the movement of movements and what that is? Well, I think that that is really what the study sought to address. So maybe I can talk about that by telling you a little bit more about the study. Nancy Roof, the editor and co-founder of Cosmos Journal, is the inspiration and guiding light of the study. When she started Cosmos Journal more than 10 years ago, She felt a profound calling to engage in work that could have transformative effect on people and on planet. And back then, the need was mainly to inform, you know, to educate people about the many kinds of transformative ideas, both new and ancient, as you say, that were entering, or in some cases re-entering, our global consciousness. So, you know, there's transpersonal psychology, integral education, integral systems, um, esoteric teachings, ideas about the commons, local living economy, indigenous 
ideas about the earth, permaculture, sharing. And many of the writers and writing she cultivated found voice, many for the first time, in Cosmos Journal. Now, when I came on just a few years ago, there was already a sense that we had moved beyond the need to inform, that something was happening, a shift was taking place, and people everywhere were waking up to the reality of our interconnection with one another and with the earth, and they were, were taking action. And people were using terms like the shift and the new story and the new paradigm. Occupy was happening, transition down movement. There were important peace-building initiatives, sharing economy. And we wanted, we had a sense that we wanted to sort of get our arms around what was going on. You know, not to put too fine a point on it or to define it, which I don't think is really the goal, and not to impose some rational order upon it, but to really just climb to a vantage point where we could see it and embrace it and put some marks on a map. And I think that we did with the study. In the end, we settled on the term global transformation because it implies change at all scales, personal to planetary. So when we talk about the movement of movements, um, it really embraces all these different ways that people are experiencing emergence and it really, you know, the movement of movements is just what it sounds like. It's many, many different things, all the things, you know, that, that I mentioned and more. Rhonda, there's so many exciting aspects of this study that kind of jump out at me. As we talked about these uh, unfolding stories, I think that one of the keys that I found to my own walk upon the earth is to recognize that my story is not the only story being told. And to be able to illustrate that to a larger population in a way that really connects to all of these different movements, but also brings together this commonality within our value structures really ties into the second insight that this movement of movements is really value driven and things such as food, energy and water are identified as universal rights and that these rights, these are at the heart of so much of the conflict that exists in the world and identifying what it is that people need in order to be able to live with some sense of security. Susie Orman is this great financial mentor to a lot of people and educator. And I happened to tune into something where she was talking. And one of the things that she talked about in her lecture was that money is security. And so if we hope to move away from some of these systems that are really based on this monetized capitalistic model, you talked about sharing economies. One of the things that I think we need to do is to really look at how do we gain security within our lives in a way that's not tied to this deeply embedded capitalistic monetized commodified model that is fragmenting the world into these independent saleable parts and to be able to understand that there are certain aspects here that are universal rights and that are clearly tied to our security. And I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about what that might look like. How might we shift our perception to this more values-based model that really looks at providing certain things to the population that 
are necessary for our security. Certainly food and water and energy are amongst those things that are fundamental to people being able to feel safe and to be able to provide them with the things that are required for them to continue to live. So what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> That's a big question. And I think so much of what you say is, is right on point. We forget that we have a choice. In other words, it's so easy to sink into a kind of um, despair about the world in a way. You know, you watch what passes for political discourse on television or the numbing, repetitive news of today's tragedies, and it makes us feel helpless or um, certainly restless. So we consume, you know, in ways that are unhealthy, shopping, drugs, toxic conversations and foods. We feed this despair, and yet we can make different choices. You know, we can turn off the TV. We can go outside and look at the sky, the clouds, the sun, put on our walking shoes and get to know the needs of our community, talk to strangers, and slowly the seeds of hope and and joyfulness can begin to bloom within us. You know, this anxiety that we just collected anxiety we have is sort of really just a shadow side of yearning. And Rivera, it reminds me of something you said. I I read a quote um, about the need to grow up and blossom into the kind of people we've always yearned to be. And it's this yearning for more meaningful work, for less superficial connection, um, that when we unpack it, we see that we're really yearning for community and for belonging. And then we go a little deeper with that and we see it's really a yearning to love ourselves. And going even deeper, it's a yearning for union with the divine, or if that word throws you, a yearning for, for, for union with all of life. So when we talk about values and the kinds of values that bring people together, we have to be careful that we don't get too driven by a particular goal, say reducing carbon in the atmosphere or something, where there's almost a false sense to it that science and nationalism, you know, can fix anything. And surely, you know, technology can come up with a way to remove toxins. And I can go along just doing business as usual. That's dangerous. I think that a values-driven approach looks more at changing our basic underlying assumptions about life and overcoming this drive to endlessly consume, overconsume, and for economic growth. These may not be the values that are most useful to us now. In the study, we found that participants were more driven by values than goals. So economic justice, peacefulness, human rights, love. And when a system is guided, shared values, it will go much further than one driven by specific goals. I thought that was one of the really compelling things that your study discovered for me. It very much resonated with me as an agent of change, someone who's involved in this self-organizing movement of movements, that I am very values-driven. I'm not so much about the specific tangible, get this piece of legislation passed uh, so much as the means have to be commensurate with the ends. The process of getting there has to be the same as the place to where we're getting, trying to go to. And 
That really brought up a lot of questions for me as I started to think about how I work for change about this self-organizing movement of movements and how do we become participant in it. One of the things your study references is the idea of improvisation. Um, and you mentioned specifically music and dance as two forms of art that have really explored improvisation deeply as a complex system, not just chaos and not just structured notes upon a page that are going to be played in a certain sequence, but actually a emergent improvisational experience. Now, this is something I have quite a bit of background in um, actually having trained in emergent improvisation uh, in a dance ensemble in college. And <laughs> actually in working with Susan Scarbati at the, in, the Benning, in Bennington College, that gave me tools for working for change and teaching people experientially how to behave in a leaderful, self-organizing movement-to-movement structure using the form of a, a murmuration, a flock of birds, and teaching the people in my workshops actually the four emergent principles that guide the way we work together. Things like fly forward, stay equidistant, don't leave your wingmate out on, on a limb. Uh, very simple <laughs> right. principles that lead to great complexity and beautiful emergent organization. Now, I'm wondering... Your, your very study found some of the principles that are guiding this global transformation movement on the, the meta level, on a very large level. And we've been circling around these five insights that were pulled out of the study. What about on the individual level? What have you seen or observed about how each one of us can approach this emergent movement of movements from a way of relating, a way of walking through our world and being a part of this very complex and beautiful evolutionary multi-stranded movement for change. Well, I'm so excited to hear you talk about your own experience of studying improvisation and movement, and I could certainly learn a lot from you, and I'm familiar with your teacher's essay um, about improvisation, which you know helped to organize some of the, the findings, actually, that came from the study. Many people talk about improvisation uh, in the study, and describe their own personal journey as an improvisational one. And I recognize that that might have different meanings for different people. However, as you well know, um, improvisation also has some very um, distinct um, rules or, or, or principles. So it's interesting to talk about it, you know, in both ways. I think to many people, improvisation means just seeing kind of what will happen next. And, you know, in answer to your question, I, I, I think that that's what each individual sort of has to do. You know, as I said earlier, is, you know, get out there in their community. That's the place to start. I mean, of course, the place to start is within oneself, to begin to transform habit energies and to try to become more present to what is really going on around you, not just what is being um, fed on the television or, or so on and so forth, but to stop the noise, the outer noise and the inner noise and to start to connect with what is um, meaningful to you, what is it that you're looking for, yearning for, then to get out into your community. Where are the actual needs in my community? Who are the people in my community that I may not come into contact with? I think this is a, an important place to start, and especially for young people. I think young people have so much energy, so much creativity to offer, yet often feel that they don't know where to begin or 
just really hopeless about the situation in the world. And my advice is, you've got to get out of your comfort zone. You know, you've got to see the world, even if the world is a couple towns away, to immerse yourself in a culture that is um, unfamiliar to you so that you can begin to dismantle some of your own preconceptions about what what life is all about. And for me, this happened in New Orleans in my 20s when I became part of a, my a community, adopted me, the community of Treme in New Orleans, and totally life-transforming experience to be immersed in improvisational jazz, living a living tradition passed from um, family member to family member in a community probably the most affected by economic disparity at the same time. So I think the first step is you're not going out there to get answers. You're not going out there to, to, to save the world. You're going out there to learn to be human, to be real, to be present, to, to uh, engage. You, you volunteer at a, at a food bank, and from there maybe you start um, meeting people you wouldn't meet otherwise and talking about issues of fresh food in the community or healthy water or something else, and something's just going to click, and that's how you find entry into this movement of movements. I'd like to take this just a tiny bit further in a different direction, perhaps. The importance of what you just said about, you know, we're all learning how to be human, essentially. Part of that is recognizing that we are part of a much larger web of creation to understand our place within the scope of humanity. Going back to this concept of improvisation and about leaderful as opposed to leadership, there's another aspect of that that I think is really important. And that is understanding that there is no one right way to get to where we're going. We have a generalized direction in mind, but also to make us really strong, to make us really capable of achieving the goals that we set for ourselves through these value-based systems that we're all aligning in these movement of movements. And if we have an understanding of what the skill set is of all of the different people that are in our movements, all of the different aspects that people bring to the table. Everybody has a different degree of knowledge. Everybody's information comes from their own essential worldview. My foundational teachings are steeped in a very specific cultural knowledge, a cultural worldview or cultural landscape, if you will. And that forms the framework of the knowledge base that I have, everything is overlaid onto this basic value structure. And being able to understand that there is incredible value in this diversity of knowledge, because no matter what comes at us, if we have to shift directions quickly, because somebody has blocked us in one direction, we're able to do that with this, with this awareness that we have of one another and what our skill sets are. And that really ties back into this other insight, which relates to alternative forms of learning, and also respecting not only seeking out these alternative forms of learning, some of those that you named in the study, I think can be expanded on because there's all kinds of ways of learning, you know, we have all of these teachings that we call sacred knowledge, 
this indigenous knowledge that we have that uh, reminds us of our place within the entire creation, what our responsibilities are from that place within creation. And that form of knowledge is something that I feel and many others feel is a missing piece of knowledge in the larger population right now that's starting to reemerge. And so being able to respect the diversity of knowledge that people bring to the movement is also part of that improvisational piece because it allows fluidity and quick directional change within the movement if it's required. And that's the whole purpose of a murmuration is to lead the hawk away from the babies and to be able to keep the community safe without actually harming the hawk, which is also one of our principles for warrior, which is, you know, you use just enough force to keep the other from harming you, but not enough so that you harm the other. Mm. All of the birds in the murmuration, as Rivera says, could easily gang up on this hawk and kill him or her. But that's not what happens. What happens is they just lead him away on this dance until eventually he tires out and gives up. And we're all engaged in in this dance. And so when we start thinking about that diversity of knowledge, we start thinking about the values that underlie that sharing, respect, for diversity and care for all life, that also ties into another value or insight that you have in regard to the study that's I think is really at the core of it all, which is this idea of oneness or interbeing, this mm-hmm. aspect of the collective consciousness at play. And you talk about these ideas of separateness as fading away and the sense of unity emerging and how have you seen that happening what is the evidence for that that you've seen in regard to your own work in in the course of the study that is just such a beautiful analogy about the hawk and i feel like collectively this is sort of what we're doing you know with the old story is we're we're collectively uh, moving our energy in a new direction in order to begin to resist or re- reject these sort of more harmful energies that are in our midst. So I just love that, and thank you um, very much for sharing that. So one thing about the study is this is not a study of the general population. You know, we didn't go out there and say, what do people think, you know, about the news story, and do they believe in it, and so on. This is really a gathering of the cosmos tribe to understand ourselves. So we turned the lens of inquiry on our own family. It began with three days of very intense inner work to really ask ourselves what's transforming us and what what does it mean for us. And we generated lists of people, many of them spiritual leaders and thought leaders that talk a lot about oneness and unity. And we saw quickly that that these principles, uh, whether they come from indigenous wisdom, esoteric teachings, from Sufi mysticism, from any of the various religions and belief systems, that there is a core value or idea of connection that underlies all of it and unity, that that we were 
we were resonating to that string, you know, as a group. There were there were quite a few of us, you know, gathered, and we came to an agreement that the deeper we looked, we saw that there was a sense of an evolutionary impulse unfolding in the universe. This is really getting to the core of it, that we are responding to a universal impulse toward oneness and toward life, toward a living universe. And so it's not surprising that the influencers, those who influenced us that we named and listed, and then went out to speak with and to survey and to talk more deeply with and then to go further and look at various websites that they recommended and various other kinds of um, organizations that had influenced them, that we would find this spiritual thread that wound around everything that we did. So where do we see it? I mean, we see it in absolutely everything that touches us through the many amazing writers and, and leaders who are doing transformative work in the world. This is a, this is a thing about worldview. You know, I, I talk to people all the time and say, oh, everything's such a mess. And my own worldview is not that because I am immersed in the lives and words of all these amazing thinkers. So my worldview is that amazing people are doing amazing things everywhere. So how does someone connect with the spiritual dimension of this this movement? I think, again, mindfulness, the uh, understanding of our interconnection, interbeing, are the primary ideas that bring all of these other things together. And we'll return to speaking with Rhonda Fabian after a quick break for a station ID and your weekly nonviolence minute. today's Nonviolent Minute, we're going to look at two concepts that emerge over and over again in our discussions on Love and Revolution Radio. The conscious act of co-creating a new storyline for our collective future, and the amorphous concept of oneness and interconnectedness that lies at the heart of our movements. The Dalai Lama states that too much self-centeredness creates isolation, which results in loneliness, anger, and fear. Thus, our happiness is found in connecting with and assisting one another. In my upcoming book, Sacred Instructions, I talk about our co-created storyline and our deep interconnectedness. Here's a brief excerpt from the opening chapter titled Creation Songs. The relationships that exist between people and place are often memorialized through defining words that merge into story. As Indigenous people, our lives are comprised of these words and the stories that they illustrate. These words and stories paint a picture that brings into form all of the elements of our existence. They provide a clear view of our unique cultural landscape, and they offer us a defined sense of place within the world. In order to fully recognize our place in creation, we must realize that our stories are not the only stories that are being told. Every living thing has its own creation song, its own language, and its own story. 
In order to live harmoniously with the rest of creation, we must be willing to listen and respect all of the harmonies that are moving around us. The only way that we'll be able to hear these harmonic vibrations is to become multi-sensory beings. We must tune in to our ability to see beyond the physical reality that surrounds us and awaken to the vast unseen world that exists. Then we can begin to see beyond sight and to hear beyond sound. We see the underlying structures that support our world and life begins to take on new shape, new meaning. When we live as multi-sensory beings, we find that we are able to comprehend the language of every living thing. We hear the voices of the trees and understand the buzzing of the bees. And we come to realize that it is the interwoven substance of these floating rhythms that holds us in delicate balance with all life. Then our life and our place in creation begins to make sense in a whole new way. Our vision expands to see the overall order of our path and our hearing attunes to a whole new source of information. Once we become attuned to this new information, we can integrate this into our physical experience and harmonize our entire being with the vibrational reality that surrounds us. Then we will become witness to the perfect orchestration of divine order. We will recognize that when the trees breathe in carbon dioxide and release oxygen, our lungs mirror that movement by breathing in the oxygen that is generously given and releasing carbon dioxide back to the trees. When we merge our internal rhythms with the rhythms of creation, we develop grace in our movement, and without thought or effort, we are able to slide into the perfectly choreographed dance of life. So, listeners, as we move forward in our own improvisational dance, it is important that we also remain mindful of the many other dancers that are on the stage so that we can create movements that are both fluid and harmonious. Our featured music this week is Lake Light by the band Crowfoot from their album As the Crow Flies. You can find their music at www.crowfootmusic.com. And now, let's return to speaking with Rhonda Fabian. I think one of the exciting things that you uncovered in this self-examination of this thread of this massive movement is the convergence of ideas without the pre-planning of we're all going to think the same way. So you, what you did was you looked at this this emergent convergence of, of belief systems and worldviews and drew out the similar veins within them, how these strands entwine together and work collaboratively and cooperatively and sometimes completely synergistically. Uh, and that's a, it's a very interesting approach to doing a study, very different than, say, surveying the entire general population, but really holding a mirror up to yourself and saying, who are we today? We're not going to be told who we are by a leader. We're not going to have one thought leader say, this is the global transformation movement. We're actually going to turn back to ourselves, think and reflect together and come up with a shared description of who and what we are. And it's very much in line with the principles of emergence. One of the things that I wanted to ask you was, was there anything surprising to you that you found in the course of doing this inquiry? Well, I think the most surprising thing for me 
as a researcher, first of all, what you say is true. We don't usually bring enough emotion to research. You know, emotion research is supposed to be this sort of very objective, emotionless uh, enterprise. And so, you know, I came to this study really as a participant researcher because I'm already somewhat immersed in the culture. My um, partner in the study, Dr. Jen Horner, on the other hand, had really no knowledge coming into it. And we had both done our graduate work at the uh, University of Pennsylvania Annenberg School where, you know, we were very well grounded in methodology studying interpersonal communication, organizational communication, all these things. So it was a really good fit for us to both have similar methodological grounding, but for me to already kind of be knowing what we were looking for in the study. You know, if someone says, let's go look for mushrooms in the woods, it would be good to have someone (laughs) that actually knows what they're looking for or knows which mushrooms are safe to eat. So I guess that was my role. And her role was really to... You know, make sure that we were bringing good, solid method to it. So I didn't really know what would come out ultimately, but what was surprising was how these ideas were reinforced again and again. You know, a lot of times in research, you know, you get a little bit of a an effect here or a suggestion of some some confluence over there. But in this enterprise, you know, everywhere we turned, every website, you might say it's it's sort of self affirming, right, because it was a study of a certain world, and yet there was just such consensus, for example, about education. So many people, so many organizations, individuals, their websites reflected this need for improved, increased education, but not you know, necessarily the kind that we're used to. I mean, if you fell asleep in class 300 years ago, you could probably wake up today and still have a very good idea where you are, you know, that's what it is to be a traditional student. The seats are fixed facing the teacher and then who pours his or her wisdom into our heads and off we go. But in our study, we found that just a total rejection of this model. I mean, universities themselves are big businesses and with every reason to prop up the status quo, you know, not to mention they're very costly. So there's a movement to unlearn some of what has been poured into our heads since the age of five or so. And you know, the idea that it's our job to create wealth, for example, or to incur debt, to live in big houses, to trust the medical system, to know what's best for us. And the new education, which, you know, Sherry was mentioning, mentioning, is the emphasis is really on local wisdom, the wisdom of elders, reskilling, learning to do things that our grandparents knew how to do, you know, like grow food or build a house. And also this new capacity that we learn collaboratively we co-learn and, and we co-create new solutions. So with the internet, there's many fascinating ways that we can build communities of learners that share our, our special interests. And I, I think that was something, it's not surprising, was most motivating to me coming out of the study was like, what an opportunity, you know, for us to come together as a community in this global transformation as a community of learners and to share our stories and to sort of flock together, you know, like these these um, beautiful murmurations you're talking about, and and really span, you know, our knowledge together so that we can explore a reality that's more more joyful and more supportive of life. I think that's really just a beautiful um, awareness that we have emerging right now. One of the things that I 
made a little note to myself here. Something that I say oftentimes in my workshops is that we are in the process of an evolutionary leap and that perhaps for the first time in human history, we're aware of it, which gives us this incredible opportunity to be able to guide the direction of that leap. And I think that that's what we're seeing happening more and more is people becoming not only aware of their power to be able to create change, but also their responsibility to create change. And I think a lot of that stems from this emerging awareness of oneness, not just as this theoretical or esoteric principle, but in in real technical and tangible ways, we are able to see that the things that are happening out in the world are really just this manifestation of the inner struggles that we're facing as well. And that if we truly want to believe in this concept of oneness, this is a actually a section of my book that I'm just finishing writing right now in this past week, that if we want to really acknowledge and we really want to embrace and we really want to um, recognize the truth in this concept of oneness and interrelatedness and interbeing, that means that we have to recognize that we're simply encountering ourselves over and over again in the faces of the people that we meet on every street every day. And that brings up a question, which is, if this is true, then how do I want to show up and meet myself on the path? You know, how will I meet the young woman that's struggling to find her sense of self in the world or the elder that's befuddled by the rapidly changing technology and the fast pace of life that exists How do I meet the man with political views that I believe are destructive or someone with ideological views that create and promote division while I'm recognizing that that division is an illusion? Can I show up in those moments facing that other who is just a reflection of me with self-love and compassion? Because when we see things that are happening in the world, we just had a series of terrorist attacks around the world, some of them more publicized than others. And when we see things like that happening, compassion is really hard. Compassion is really hard when we feel that we've been wronged or when we see harmful and destructive actions playing out before us on the world stage. And in all of these reflected images that are occurring out in the world, we see the aspects of ourselves that we admire, but we also see the aspects that we'd rather not claim, the bright light and the deep darkness. And when we see that shadow of humanity reflected back to us, we can't meet that experience with more darkness or we simply expand the shadow. So the question comes, this whole practice of nonviolence as a way of being in the world is really tied to these ideas of love-based, heart-based change that Rivera and I talk about every week that we teach about, that we incorporate into our life work. So how do we become agents of change that are taking on the responsibility to bring more light into these moments of darkness? And how do we come to a place within ourselves where we're willing to end the war that exists both within us and is being reflected outside of us. Because I think those really are the questions that are at the key to creating the type of change that we really want to be able to manifest and to recognize that there was just an event hosted by the University of Arizona, my alma mater, Go Wildcats, where 
Noam, Noam Chomsky, Glenn uh, Greenwald, and Edward Snowden were in discussion. And one of the comments that Chomsky made was that when you smash something with a hammer, it just multiplies. So when you right. use this really violent force against somebody, the damage increases and it just keeps cycling around and that we have this need, this knee jerk reaction for revenge when we face harmful things, whether it's environmental destruction or the loss of commons or violent life destroying war and that our knee jerk reaction and need for revenge is diametrically opposed to our real human needs for justice and to the true desires of our souls. So how do we get right with these real deep, juicy underlying aspects of all of this and make a decision to meet ourselves on the path with compassion and with this commitment to really end not only the wars that we see outside of ourselves, but the ones that we're engaged in within ourselves. I think that really is kind of at the heart of all of the work that we're doing. You know, can we find the terrorists within ourselves, within our own groups that may not be acting out in such obvious and blatant ways, but are still acting out to feed the larger energetic structure that supports the things in the world that are really destructive. That is really just exactly right. We have to confront the darkness within ourselves. And I think that one of the key aspects is openness. You know, we're here to feel it all, right? And so we feel these things very deeply. We feel you know, our own lives may be touched by tremendous grief, tremendous pain. What we realize in those moments, which are really sort of an ego death moment, a bardo state, and the world is sort of experiencing this bardo state, is all the other pretensions sort of fall away, and the truth of the moment is revealed. You know, when everything just comes down to it, and it's life or death, or we're stripped away of all the, the trappings of our ego, that in a way is the most transcendent moment because this is when we can really grow and this is when we can really see clearly what must happen. And so for the world, you know, I think um, Charles Eisenstein says it says it in a way that the, the, the present convergence of crises in all these areas, in money, energy, education, health, climate, politics, it's a birth crisis. Similar, I guess, to what I was saying about the Bardo State. It's a birth crisis expelling us from the old world into a new. And my teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, says, you know, we're here to awaken from the illusion of separation. And maybe it's these very jarring experiences that help us to wake up and to to reach out to one another in new ways. I do know that when we suffer, we gain from that experience such a deeper understanding of the suffering of others. So we have to somehow turn that energy, that mindful energy of of what it is that's causing so much pain, we have to turn that into a compassionate action toward others, a compassionate response. 
So this is the great alchemy. I mean, this is the great challenge is to take in all of this and then do that inner work, reach out to others, hold one another up and just say, come on, let's go. And, and then you know, bring that compassionate response to the world. To me, that is the work. That is really invigorating to hear you say that, Rhonda. I'm just really enjoying listening to you share some of your personal perspective. We've talked a lot about the study, but what you were just sharing is very personal to yourself and to your own approach to the world and this worldview that you expressed earlier as a way that grounds you tangibly in looking at both the suffering, but also this incredible transformation that is coming through suffering uh, in many cases, but then also through creativity. I think one of the invigorating components to me is that we spoke at the very beginning of the show about the living system and the emerging awareness that we are part of a living universe and not just a little molecule or atom or, you know, even a lonely planet circulating through a universe, but every layer of the universe from the big one to the atomic, to the microscopic, to our human being selves, to our natural systems. Everything is evolving, emerging, changing, and interconnected. And one of the things about improvisation and self-organizing movements is that they're reflective of this reality in which we are immersed. So really what we're trying to do with the movement of movements is to in so many ways, walk our talk or talk our walk or both at the same time, that if we are an evolving living universe, then we also need to relate to one another as that. So the movements are prefigurative. They are learning how to self-organize as a way of collaboratively and improvisationally create change that leads to more emergent, evolving, collaborative, interconnected, respectful systems on the other side of the change. It's it's kind of a mind-warping thing to, to really think about what an interconnected, ever-changing universe looks like in this exact moment. It's very exciting. And I'm wondering... When, now that you've done this study and you've been on your own journey with all of these thoughts, um, what brings you most alive in your day-to-day experience? What is it that's waking you up invigorated every day about this time of intense change and transformation? Well, the theme of Cosmos Journal is global transformation in harmony with life. And I really think that that says it for me as well. In other words, we want to bring positive change to our families, to our communities, to our relationships, and we want to do it in such a way that it's in harmony with nature, you know, as you say, with all the unfolding beauty. You know, we we live at a point of crisis. We feel like things are so dire, and we have many, many difficult and challenging problems to address. But on the other hand, we also have to remember that the Earth has sustained life for billions of years. I mean, the Earth sustains us. We we take our breathing sort of for granted. You know, we drink a glass of water and don't think too much about it. But these beautiful, this beautiful system, our Earth, this, this beautiful living organism is so supportive of us, So has been so forgiving 
and continues to forgive and to and care for us and embrace us. And so just waking up to that every day is what excites me. That here's another fresh day, another opportunity to explore these ideas, to have a positive impact in in my community, let's say, or um, even to do a better job in my personal relationships with my with my husband, with my children, with my friends. So all of this is so positive, even holding this awareness each day, waking up and being aware that people are suffering and, and holding that and contemplating our relationship with that is in itself a step toward global transformation. And then each and every decision we make every day is such an important part of being the change that we want to see that is really just what it is, manifesting that, showing up to that, and making it happen for yourself so that the world can can feel that energy and and respond to it. And it does. I really love what you just said, Rhonda, because I think that it kind of corresponds to this saying that we see periodically online, which is we are the result of the love of thousands that we exist here as part of this ongoing lineage of life and that we are part of this unending impulse toward life that is Mm -hmm. beating out from the heart of the universe. And I'm sure that we could go on talking to one another for a very, very long time and never run out of things to say. Like Rivera and I, you know, have these conversations all the time and we have so many things that we could say to one another. And so I'd like to think that this is just the beginning of a conversation for all of us that will continue to emerge and to grow and that these storylines will continue to weave. As we're getting ready to head out, can you offer our listeners some final thoughts on not only the work that you've done, but your own transformational process and what might be some things that folks can do in their own lives to help move their own process along. For myself, I I know that, that what is so valuable each and every day is human connection. So I encourage anyone who is feeling disconnected from the global transformation movement or just disconnected from living a full and happy life to to really reach out and connect with people perhaps that you wouldn't normally connect with. And again, especially I say this to young people, we don't have the answers. We don't have all the answers. If we did, we wouldn't be in this situation. The youth have so much energy and I would say get together with some of your friends and talk about these ideas and come up with your own transformative solutions and ideas for how to make the world a better place. You know, this is just one small study. I mean, we're so grateful to the Fenwick Foundation who funded this study and and to Cosmos for publishing it. It's one snapshot in, in time. There's so much, so many other ways we can work to understand what is happening and to each play a role in its unfoldment. Well, thank you so much, Rhonda. I want to remind the listeners that we are speaking with Rhonda Fabian, who is the digital editor of Cosmos Journal, the founding partner and CEO of Fabian Faber Communication. And she also is the co-author of the study Connecting for Change with Dr. Jen Horner. 
And you can find out more about that study uh, by looking it up on Cosmos Journals. There's a great short essay entitled Five Insights About the Global Transformation uh, from the Cosmos Study Connecting for Change. And you can also, if you want to read the entire Cosmos Study, actually email them and get the entire thing sent to you. It's a wonderful resource. I've asked them for it and read it. It's incredible. So I very much recommend it. Rhonda, thank you so much for joining us on Love and Revolution Radio today. Is there any other place that people should go to find more of your work or articles or more of the information that you'd like them to connect with? Well, I certainly encourage everyone to go to cosmosjournal.org and to sign up for the free newsletter, which I'm so happy to send out every two weeks. I love hearing people's ideas in the response to the newsletter. And, of course, the journal itself is a beautiful print journal, a keepsake. It's absolutely a stunning journal. There aren't many like them left. And you can subscribe to Cosmos Journal uh, at cosmosjournal.org. I also want to thank you both for just being so lovely and uh, offer you the deepest peace of the day. Oh, and back to you as well. Thank you so much, Rhonda. And I just want to give a quick note to our listeners that Cosmos Journal is K-O-S-M-O-S, K-O-S-M-O-S-Journal.org. Thanks this week to our guest, Rhonda Fabian, and to my ever-awesome co-host, Sherry Mitchell. Our theme song, Love and Revolution, has words and music by Diane Patterson and is performed by Diane Patterson and Spirit Radio. You can find more of her great music at www.dianepatterson.org. And I would like to thank my amazing co-host, Rivera Sun, for today's beautiful and important conversation. If you enjoyed this show, you might also enjoy the things that I post on my Facebook page, Sacred Instructions, which can be found on the Love and Revolution webpage and on the podcast. Love and Revolution Radio is a weekly radio program that you can have broadcast in your local area. If your local station is not already broadcasting it, you can certainly ask them to do so. You can reach us via the Love and Revolution page on Rivera Sun's website, www. RiveraSun.com. And we are Love and Revolution Radio on Podomatic, Stitcher, and iTunes. For Love and Revolution Radio, I'm Rivera Sun. The Movement of Movements is an emerging, self-organizing, improvisational, leaderful wave of global transformation. Perhaps, listeners, you'll find the joy and the courage to embrace this change and join the dance of the evolving universe by the time we talk to you next week. What if you knew that your actions determine